Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 66, New Dawns. As the campaigning season of 1916 came to a close, the belligerents looked ahead to the new year. 1916 had been a year of varying fortune. Once hailed as the decisive year of the war, the sum total of the fighting had left a very different result. On land and at sea, the Central Powers were left in a delicate state. The tactical victory at Jutland had not lessened the naval blockade, and the great offensives at Verdun and Trentino had stalled. Ludendorff was among the first to acknowledge the Central Powers were lucky to survive. Although the conquest of Romania ended the year on a positive note, Ludendorff was certain the Entente would again make a supreme effort, not only to make good on their losses, but to act to their strength and superiority in numbers. He admitted that the future looked bleak, stating the only comfort to be found was Germany's ability to defy the Allied advance. As mentioned in the previous episode, Germany ended 1916 by cutting her losses. Construction on the Hindenburg Line began that autumn and would continue through to March. Once complete, it would allow Germany to shorten her lines and fight on the defensive for 1917. It was tacit admittance that Germany needed time to recuperate, causing Hindenburg to reflect, quote, The year 1916 spoke a language which made itself heard, end quote. On the other side of the hill, the Entente's military and political leadership converged on Paris to discuss their plans for 1917. Two separate meetings were held. The military chiefs assembled at Joffre's headquarters in Chantilly, while the diplomats congregated at the Quai d'Orsay. Ironically, coordination was the common theme. At Chantilly, Joffre expected the Allies to stay the course. The Western Front would remain the main theater, with a full resumption of the general offensive at the earliest possible moment. Joffre wanted to attack in February, but this was soon pushed back to April to accommodate climactic concerns in Russia and the Balkans. At the Quai d'Orsay, Briand urged harmony among the Entente's diplomats. None of the delegates believed they could defeat Germany alone, but how best to achieve this was a point of contention. This was especially true for Lloyd George, who had come to Paris with a particular agenda. Unimpressed with Robertson's year-end report, Lloyd George accused Robertson of inflating the year-end numbers by including Romanian and Russian estimates in the grand total, putting the Entente's manpower at 22,755,000 men against the Central Powers' 12,332,000 men. Lloyd George suspected Russian and Romanian estimates to be overly optimistic. By November, Romania's 800,000-man army had been broken, and after the Brusilov Offensive, Russia would need time to get her affairs back in order. Combined, that left 11,800,000 men unaccounted for, tipping the scale in favor of the Central Powers, 12,332,000 to 10,785,000. This was not an encouraging picture. Lloyd George warned the diplomats to take the army's optimism with a grain of salt, saying, quote, Upon the decisions we take now will depend the ultimate issue. In 1914-16, 
we could afford the blunder without throwing away the chance of final victory. If we take the wrong turning in 1917, I do not believe that our fortunes can be retrieved. End quote. That evening, the officials and their army chiefs dined alongside one another, and discovered they were not far apart on the key issues. They agreed an April offensive was preferable to one in February, and that the Balkan stage should be given as much time and support as possible. Lloyd George welcomed this, but he was dismayed to hear there was no talk of moving the main effort away from the Western Front. Nonetheless, Briand was able to hail the meetings a success, telling a mob of reporters that the Entente had reached a common purpose. Unfortunately, Briand's enthusiasm was premature. The first sign of trouble occurred in Britain, which saw 581 labor strikes in 1916, at a cost of some 2.5 million workdays. The unrest began in April, when the House introduced a bill which would centralize labor and industry under the Asquith administration. But the opposition from unions and industry leaders convinced Asquith to back down, much to the chagrin of Lloyd George, who felt centralization was necessary for the war effort. Trouble was, Asquith had always governed as a relaxed chairman of the board, hearing all arguments, then postponing decisions until consensus emerged. With the Russian and Somme offensives fast approaching, Asquith decided to punt on the labor bill, choosing to wait until the campaign's results could be assessed. Surprisingly, it was Romania's defeat, and not Asquith's support of attrition, which led to trouble. The collective might of the Entente could only watch helplessly as another ally was overrun. Memories of the Serbian disaster came flooding back. Romania's collapse was a PR nightmare for the Entente, causing Churchill to reflect, quote, They chose instead to drink in company the corrosive cup of internecine vengeance, and the cup is not yet drained. End quote. By the end of the year, Asquith had become increasingly withdrawn, exhausted by the war, and resigned to another year of carnage. Lloyd George saw an opportunity to create a new war committee, chaired by himself and excluding Asquith, who would be allowed to keep his position but on diminished authority. When Asquith refused this political emasculation, his government collapsed. With the backing of the Unionists, Lloyd George established a new coalition, one which he, a liberal, sat as head of a conservative majority. In the words of historian David French, Lloyd George was a prime minister without a party, while the Unionists were a party without a prime minister. David Lloyd George became Britain's prime minister on December 5, 1916. His arrival at 10 Downing Street marked a turning point in Britain's war characterized by increased centralization and the aggressive pursuit of war aims. The political carousel in Britain was mirrored by a major shake-up happening in the French military. The levy finally broke on December 6th, the day Bucharest fell to Mackinson's forces. In Paris, the Chamber of Deputies voted on the future of Briand's government. After the regular hooting and hollering, the votes were cast. The final tally emerged 344 in favor, 160 opposed. The result was hardly catastrophic for Briand, but it marked a substantial shift 
from the 444 to 80 vote in January. If Briand was to stay in power, he needed the support of the opposition, who were demanding changes to army leadership. On December 6th, Joffre was dismissed as commander-in-chief. Joffre had held the position since 1911, but after the disappointments of 1916, he had lost the support of his senior officers. Still, Briand had to be careful. Dismissing the Hero of the Marne could have a cascading effect. On December 27th, Joffre was promoted to Marshal of France, a ceremonial position with no real authority. He would resign the post two days later. Everyone expected either Foch or Pétain to succeed Joffre. Pétain was a national hero, but Foch's experience with the British gave him the edge. Instead, both men were bypassed. Pétain was a Catholic, which disqualified him, and Foch's association with the Somme did not garner him much support either. Mere hours after Joffre's dismissal, Foch too lost command of his army group, and went to work drawing up plans in case the Germans invaded through Switzerland. Foch was understandably furious, but he had the sense to bend before the storm. He would not be long in the wilderness. Command of the French army then passed to 58-year-old Robert Nevel. After the reconquest of Douaumont, Nevel was the man of the hour, the hero who would now smash through to victory. His heralded creeping barrage had caught the public's imagination. His face was plastered on newspapers across the country, and the headline, We have the chief, we know the method, became a rallying cry. As a French journalist commented, quote, Nevel was representative of the national temperament. This is the reason that he was blindly followed. End quote. Nevel gave France some much-needed swagger. At once, he began planning the Great Spring Offensive, the offensive that would end the war in one swift blow of violence and brutality. His charm and eloquence endeared him to politicians on both sides of the channel. Nevel's mother had been a Scot, and he spoke immaculate English. Haig was impressed, as was Lloyd George. But some generals were more guarded. Fayol commented, Nevel thinks big, but I do not know if his method of execution is right. Tragically, time would prove Fayol to be crushingly right. As we can see, 1916 was a pivotal year. Although peace remained a long ways off, changes in personnel and strategy meant 1917 would have a different look. Franz Joseph and Lord Kitchener were dead. Joff, Falkenhayn, Asquith, and Foch were dismissed, replaced by new energetic men who would navigate their nations through the storm. No one really knew how 1917 would play out, but perhaps the biggest question mark fell on Russia. By the end of the year, Russia was beginning to slide into the abyss. Foreign observers noted with alarm the growing unrest sweeping across the country. There were widespread food shortages in the cities, where wages were simply too low for workers to afford the inflated prices. Petrograd and Moscow were crippled with strikes. In October, a Petrograd garrison revolted, firing on police sent to break up the strikers. 
the public's ire fell on the Tsar and Tsarina. Since Nicholas assumed command of the army, he had spent long stretches away from the capital. In his place, Tsarina Alexandra ruled as regent. Like her husband, Alexandra was not fit to address the crisis engulfing her country. She reacted spontaneously, dismissing ministers and officials at the slightest hint of disloyalty. The Duma chafed, as did the military, who felt the German-born empress was being manipulated by her closest confidant, and perhaps her only friend, the mad monk Rasputin. On the battlefields, the war had gone from bad to worse. Brusilov's offensive had died out in September. It had been Russia's greatest success of the war, but the pressure it exerted had exhausted what remained of her once proud army. Over 700,000 Russians dead, wounded, or missing. The war showed no signs of ending, and the stream of dead and maimed returning from the front spoke of terrible conditions in the absence of leadership. Thus, on the night of December 30th, Prince Felix Yuzapov, an Oxford-educated aristocrat, decided to act. Prince Yuzapov had spent months befriending Rasputin. It was rumored that Yuzapov was secretly a transvestite, who would visit the mad monk for quote-unquote treatment. It was all a ploy to gain Rasputin's trust. The mad monk had been invited to a banquet held at Yuzapov's estate. Rasputin had not planned to attend, but was coaxed when Yuzapov said his attractive wife, Ernia, was in need of the monk's powers. At first, they tried to poison him. Yuzapov had obtained cyanide a few weeks prior, and administered the poison to some pink cakes which was baked especially for Rasputin. When he arrived, the guests watched in disbelief as Rasputin wolfed them down. The cyanide had no effect, the lack of potency being attributed to Yuzapov incorrectly storing the chemical. Yuzapov adjourned upstairs to figure out what to do next. After a brief conference with Grand Duke Pavlovich, Yuzapov decided to kill by shooting. Pavlovich lent him his pistol, and Yuzapov rejoined the party. As he did, he drew Rasputin's attention to an old crucifix hanging on the wall. When Rasputin walked over to inspect it, Yuzapov brandished the pistol and fired a single round into Rasputin's back. The monk gave a hellish scream and crumpled to the ground. His spine had been severed. In his death agony, they dragged Rasputin into a cellar, where he was left to bleed out. After a car had been fetched, the conspirators returned to the cellar and discovered Rasputin had yet to expire. His breathing had become weak and coarse, the result of the blood and fluid filling his lungs. The wretched state of the man was too much for Yuzapov, but as he went over to deliver the fatal blow, well, I'll let Yuzapov himself tell us what happened next. This coming straight from Yuzapov's highly dramatized memoir, Lost Splendor, published in 1953. Quote, Scarcely knowing what I was doing, I seized the corpse by the arms and shook it violently. It leaned to one side and fell back. I was just about to go 
when I suddenly noticed an almost imperceptible quivering in his left hand. I bent over and watched him closely. Slight tremors contracted his face. All of a sudden, I saw the left eye open. A few seconds later, his right eyelid began to quiver, then opened. I then saw both eyes, the green eyes of a viper, staring at me with an expression of diabolical hatred. The blood ran cold in my veins. My muscles turned to stone. I wanted to run away, to call for help, but my legs refused to obey me and not a sound came from my throat. I stood rooted to the flagstones as if caught in the toils of a nightmare. Then a terrible thing happened. With a sudden violent effort, Rasputin leapt to his feet, foaming at the mouth. A wild roar echoed through the vaulted rooms, and his hands convulsively thrashed the air. He rushed at me, trying to get up my throat, and sank his fingers into my shoulder like steel claws. His eyes were bursting from their sockets, blood oozed from his lips, and all the time he called me by name, in a low, raucous voice. No words can express the horror I felt. I tried to free myself, but was powerless in his vice-like grip. A ferocious struggle began. This devil, who was dying of poison, who had a bullet in his heart, must have been raised from the dead by the powers of evil. There was something appalling and monstrous in his diabolical refusal to die. End quote. Rasputin then fled upstairs and escaped into the courtyard. Yuzapov and three other men chased after him. Fortunately, the courtyard gates were locked and he could flee no further. Cornered, Rasputin was finally dispatched with a shot to the head. His body was rolled into a canvas and dumped in a nearby river. Despite being badly shaken and disturbed by what transpired, Yuzapov was full of confidence, convinced that what had just taken place would save Russia and the dynasty from ruin. News of Rasputin's death spread like wildfire. According to Alfred Knox, jubilation was felt across all classes. Perfect strangers meeting one another in the street celebrated the monk's demise. Although his death had been anticipated for some time, the Tsar and Tsarina were dumbfounded. It is impossible to believe that neither were aware of the general dislike of Rasputin, yet they adhered to him despite the advice of their closest advisors. Nicholas saw the murder as an assault on his rule, but more importantly, an assault on his family. But Nicholas found he could do nothing about it. Rasputin's murderers were effectively immune from persecution. Why? Well, as cruel as this may sound, in the eyes of the court, Rasputin was a mere peasant. Yuzapov and Pavlovich were top Romanov elite, and dragging them in front of a court for a peasant's death would have been unprecedented. The Tsar could do little else except banish the conspirators to exile and house arrest. Yuzapov and Ernia would spend the remaining years in Paris. Felix would pass away in 1967, followed by Ernia in 1970. While the significance of Rasputin's murder remains hotly contested, it serves as a convenient way to close out our discussions of 1916. By the end of the year, 
Russia was on a slippery slope, and the administration was in upheaval. Alexei Brusilov noted with concern, quote, I do not know about the other front commanders, but I feel very disappointed, seeing clearly that the state machine was finally faltering, and that our ship of state was moving on the stormy waves of the Sea of Life without a rudder and a commander. It is easy to foresee that, under these conditions, this unfortunate ship could easily run against an obstacle and perish, not from the actions of an enemy, or from internal strife, but from a lack of governance and common sense on the part of those fated to stand at the helm." End quote. Despite growing concern from his Entente allies, the Tsar was unmoved by these developments. British Ambassador George Buchanan wrote of the alarming state of affairs, quote, Revolution was in the air, and the only moot point was whether it would come from above or below. A palace revolution was openly spoken of, and at a dinner at the embassy, a Russian friend of mine declared that it was a mere question of whether both the Tsar and Tsarina or only the latter, would be killed. On the other hand, a popular outbreak, provoked by food shortage, might occur at any moment. End quote. As they started to plan for 1917, both sides were aware that 1916's attrition had had an impact. Full casualty lists could not be compiled until the end of hostilities, but the belligerents were aware the process was far from finished. For the Germans, the most pressing issue was security. With her army reeling after the Somme, Ludendorff looked to take the fight elsewhere. Just before Christmas, German naval staff floated the idea of resuming unrestricted submarine warfare. Ludendorff agreed, believing the U-boats could set Britain on her heels early in the year. However, Chancellor Betham Holwig, clinging to whatever influence he had left, opposed the idea, fearing that a resumption of the campaign would force the United States to make good on her threats and declare war. Hulwig sought another avenue, one which after the fall of Bucharest gave the Central Powers all the bargaining chips. With the assistance of the Austrian Foreign Minister, Stefan Berrien, Hulwig drafted a formal peace note. The Central Powers called for the immediate cessation of all hostilities, and suggested the belligerents meet in a neutral country to discuss terms. Recently re-elected U.S. President Woodrow Wilson would mediate the talks. Wilson hoped to arrive at a compromise, a peace without victors or vanquished. Issued on December 18th, the peace note was hardly satisfactory. It was not the language of an enemy suing for peace. Instead, the Central Powers boasted of their ability to withstand the Allied advance, casting upon the blame of continuing the war on the Entente. The note read, quote, In a strife that Germany and her allies have given proof of their indestructible strength in winning considerable success at war, their unshakable lines resist ceaseless attacks of their enemy's arms. The recent diversion in the Balkans was speedily and victoriously thwarted. The latest events have demonstrated that a continuation of the war cannot break their resisting power. End quote. For the Entente, peace on such terms was no peace at all. 
the Central Powers refused to cede any territory, and this was unacceptable. Lloyd George and Briand ejected the proposal out of hand, thus setting the stage for 1917. If 1916 altered the war's character, the 1917 would change world history. In February, Germany resumed unrestricted submarine warfare. Tsar Nicholas would abdicate the throne, and the United States would enter the war in April. On the battlefields, Nevelle's great offensive would end in failure, completing Falkenhayn's goal of bleeding the French army to exhaustion. Yes, the first four months of the year saw a whirlwind of activity, and I'm really looking forward to getting started. Unfortunately, our discussion for 1917 will have to wait for a bit. This summer is shaping up to be a busy one, and I'm not sure how often I'll be able to post new episodes. In the meantime, I've been preparing a series of mini-episodes to fill the void. They're much shorter, about 10 to 15 minutes each, but hopefully they'll be able to tie us over until I'm able to start anew. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This week, I would like to thank our most recent donors, Jacques, Roddy, and Steven. Thank you very much for your kind contributions, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a great way to help grow the show, as the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been episode 66 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.